people smart, enabling organisations and individuals to be disability inclusive and accessible. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Be People Smart podcast. I'm Jodie Greer, I'm your host and I am the founder of Be People Smart and again today we're going to be busting some more myths and with me today another fabulous guest speaker, how exciting, I have Nathan Whitbread. Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself please? Yeah, of course you can, Jodie. Well, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's lovely to meet you and hang out with you. Um, so my name's Nathan. I run an organisation called the Neurodivergent Coach, which is all about coaching. And it's about neurodiversity. And we've kind of got this kind of <clears throat> objective that we'd want to change the way neurodiversity is perceived in the workplace and make what we would describe as the neuroinclusive workplace a reality. And we can talk a bit more about what that means. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. Neuro-inclusive. I'm going to coin that as well. Um, So before we get to that, though, just to let everyone know what myths we're going to be busting. And as I always say, I'm sure there'll be more myths that come up along the way. But the primary ones selected by Nathan are the same challenge equals the same adjustment and personal assistance are only only for those with physical disabilities. So we're going to come on to both of those. And I'm really interested in this. Although I've spoken to Nathan before, um, Mm. this is going to be a great discussion. So let's first of all talk a bit more then about you and what you do, (laughs) Nathan. That's all right. Um, And first of all, because of course you've already spoke about neurodiversity and I just, hopefully you don't mind me saying this because you're neurodivergent yourself, right? I am. And has that helped you to help others? Yes and no, I'd say. (laughs) So yes, it has because I have some lived experience and no, it hasn't because I have some lived experience that is unique to me. So I think you get into that whole unlearning thing about just because you've solved a problem in a certain way doesn't mean that's useful for others. And I think it's kind of almost like growing up in any industry, isn't it? You realise there's more than one way to skin a rabbit or a cat or whatever you choose to do. But there's different ways to approach things, yeah? And... And I think it's helpful to un- understand that the, that you can solve problems in a certain way, but you have to hold it lightly. And certainly when I'm working with individuals around this space, it's okay to offer stuff that's worked for you, but always offer it in the sense of saying, well, this has worked for me. Can we explore this and see if this is useful for you? Or is there a different way to approach this that might be useful to you? Instead of saying this is a de facto solution. Yeah, I really like that because, you know, I mean, I talk about it a lot, but so do I, so do others, that one size doesn't fit all. And I think the fact that you're taking each individual as an individual, it might sound obvious, but unfortunately it's not that common. It makes all the difference. Yeah, and I think there's also <clears throat> it's financial reasons for doing that as well because we can throw a lot of stuff at people and if it doesn't solve the problem we set out to do, we run a huge risk of creating more problems. And I think this is particularly true around things like technology that is put in place to solve issues. If that technology itself fundamentally makes more problems because of its complexity or because it doesn't suit the organisation or the way the individual thinks or processes and deals with stuff, then actually it becomes part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And that's not good business, I would argue. And if you take a sort of vanilla cookie cut approach, you run a, 
a huge risk of creating more problems. I don't think this has to be very complicated, but like you said, we just have to speak, speak, treat people as individuals and constantly strive for the simplest solutions. So can you give us any examples Mm. of simple solutions that have made a difference for some people? Yeah, it was quite a topical one. So, so back in the day, there was um, a huge, a huge number of individuals were given dictaphones to help them remember stuff, which are brilliant. I mean, on the surface, you know, you're, you're talking to the dictaphone, you've got the recording, you can listen back to it. And that on the surface sounds like <clears throat> a great thing. <clears throat> but unfortunately, that means you've got to have time to listen back to it. And yes, you can plug it into your computer and do some really interesting things around transcribing, i.e. turning the audio into text on the screen. And that can be really helpful. But all that stuff is more stuff and it's more complexity and it's more cables and it's more things to carry around. The simple solution for anyone who's got a smartphone is you can just dictate into your phone. And you already have a phone. And Apple, have, for example, have invested huge amounts of money along with others in getting that same dictation software to work well on the phone or good enough for what we need. So there's a really good example where you can actually solve a problem really simply. And it's actually using tools we maybe already have but aren't quite aware of some of its functionalities and capabilities. Do you know, I think that's probably one of the biggest things, actually, Mm. is that people often don't recognize what they've already got, whether that be on their mobile phone, what's Mm. built into their laptop. Um, You know, obviously, you mentioned Apple, and I'm quite happy to sing their praises because they do have some fantastic functionality for accessibility. Mm. But of course, like you say, they're not the only one on Android, you know, Windows devices. um, There's so Mm. much built in. But the reality is, it can feel quite hidden. And so unless you know where to look, if if you don't know it's there, it's not there anyway, so you probably wouldn't go mm-hmm. seeking. But if you don't know where to look, it can be quite complex to even activate some of this stuff. Yeah, and I think with the Apple one particularly, I mean, sorry, just not that I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not flogging Apple here, I'm not on commission. But the brilliant thing about Apple is that if you live anywhere near an Apple store, you can always go to the Genius Bar. You can always go, well, actually, help me. I think this might be, I might need some help with this. Can you, can you help me understand my device better? Admittedly, they'll probably try and sell you something, but if you can resist that and just focus in on what you've got and what you need, that can be really helpful. Yeah, and I think, you know, even talking to them about some of the shortcuts and ways that you activate certain mm-hmm. things. I mean, for instance, <laughs> I accidentally worked out that if I triple click the big button on the side of my iPhone, then my narrator turns on. Yeah. And it was actually quite frustrating the first time because then I didn't realise how I'd done it and I couldn't turn it off again. Um, <laughs> but it, it's brilliant to now understand and to know some of the shortcuts um, for turning this stuff on and off because some of us don't need some of this functionality constantly. No. But depending on what task we're carrying out, I mean, I use the dictator. Um, you know, I speak into my phone a lot. I like sending voice notes now. I've become one of those people because I can. And because to be honest, it just makes my life easier and makes things happen quicker for me. And yeah. that's why I'm a little bit addicted to my phone. <laughs> and that, that's another debate. And that's another thing. Because I think there's also, and, and that's the something about there about making sure the tool doesn't become part of the problem. It is true. Managing that well is really good. But you also talked about something else that's really, I think really 
poignant and important. It's, it's been how to switch the channel. Because I think, in especially in the digital world particularly, we can sometimes feel so siloed into certain channels. I email used to be it. Now we've got Messenger. We've got other platforms. But not being afraid to switch the channel and the medium based on how we're trying to communicate. So, for example, if, like me, you struggle sometimes with writing, especially in text because of your spelling and your and your grammar and your punctuation, yes, there's loads of support out there. But do you know what? If I dictate something, actually, if I if I leave a voice note, that articulates my message generally far better, as long as you can understand the North London twangs. Well, they're probably more subtle than my East London twangs. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I agree, because also coming back to even the tools available, for instance, I think sometimes when we talk about screen readers or narrators, there's often... Mm -hmm some assumption that they're only used by people with low or no vision but actually a lot of neurodivergent people use them either because it just takes away you know some of the need for reading or some of the overstimulus from screen work you can listen for a while instead and so again it's this switching channels but yeah. having those tools available to you when you need them I mean they're there it's not costing anything well, is that and, and another I mean just to segue on a slightly different angle if it's okay if you think about TV. I mean, now on iPlayer and loads of the platforms, you can turn on subtitles pretty much whenever you want. And it's interesting. So for neurodivergent individuals, sometimes that's about being able to process what's going on or if you're getting distracted or if you've got a headache, you can just dive back into the dialogue and understand what's happened because it's all there in text format. And the, again, another tool that's just there but actually can be really helpful with your enjoyment of something. And you haven't got to stress about, especially if it's maybe, you know, something the accent's not quite hitting it for you and you're having trouble processing what's being said. You can just re-engage with the content really well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think also you've got other options then to, you know, for instance, you can skip content, you can do whatever works for you. I mean, I won't pretend there's often videos I see online and if they're quite lengthy, I will... <laughs> Because if they've got captions on them, I will often, you know, move the little bar along and then I'll see the, the section I was actually looking for. And then I watch that part and then I might move it along again and then realise yeah. that actually I don't need to watch all eight minutes. I've watched the two minutes I needed. Thank you very much. Yeah. I can't be alone. <laughs> I'm both, I don't think you are. At all. And I think that's about making stuff. I mean, we're talking about accessibility here, but that's all about actually making content and everything we do accessible because... What's the purpose of content? It's to communicate something. And actually, we should make it as easy as possible to find the bit that actually the person we're trying to communicate with wants so they can just zero in on that. Because that's And then we've served its purpose. So talking about serving purposes and built-in tools, what are some of the readily available tools you frequently find people may not be aware of but really help them day to day? Okay, so just looking at so Microsoft Office, just to switch vendors to another big powerhouse, <laughs> um, has got some amazing stuff in 365. So you've got Read Aloud, which I guess lots of people are aware of, So you, which will basically read what's on the screen to you. Yes, there are limited voices. Yes, that can be grating. But this is about working out what's good enough. And But you can play with the speed, which is great. So you can literally – So and what I mean by that, why that's great is that sometimes – if you're just reviewing something, you already know what the content says. Speed is fine because you'll hear mistakes. 
Whereas if you've got to really listen to understand and process, you might want to slow it down. And being aware of that is really helpful. You've got a basic dictation function in there, which is not bad, not the best. They're better out there. Um, but it but it's good enough for quite a lot of individuals. Um, you've also got something there called an immersive reader, which will actually change the color of word for you. And you can do stuff like highlight the line you're reading and all this sort of stuff, which is great. I mean, it's just really powerful tools that are just there and built in. And the big advantage with this stuff is it's just there. You haven't got to load up another app that may not work with your system, that may not be up to the latest version when you need it, because that just slows you down. And the last thing we want to do with any of these things is slow people down because that just stops you wanting to use them. So just a few examples. There's loads of other stuff out there as well. But yeah, just some stuff that comes to mind. Do you know, I think that's actually really helpful <coughs> because, I mean, I've never actually played with the immersive reader, but I knew it was there. Mm. But I do know from speaking to people myself that even, you know, read aloud. When I tell people it's there and they say, is it? And it, I think it's because it almost becomes wallpaper yeah. that they hadn't looked for it and they just <laughs> hadn't noticed that it had appeared, Right. So and also, I was going to say to you, Jodie, prior to Read Aloud coming out, you can actually screen read on older versions. So there is an, actually a speak function that's hidden deep inside Word that if you go into the menus, you can find it. And, you know, in the very top left-hand corner, you can actually put it out there as an extra button. You've only got to do it once, but once it's there, it will then read for you as well. So it's actually been there. The tech to do has been there for years. Yeah, <laughs> I have the narrator actually on my... Uh... <laughs> I have it on my ribbon, you know, at the bottom of yeah. my screen, so I can switch it on really easily. I know there's also a shortcut, but mm. one thing about my memory, so I actually do really struggle with memory, and I can't remember shortcuts. I am really bad at trying to recall them. So I love buttons and having them present in front of me, but I think that's another thing with these kind of adjustments and the tools that are available to people is even how you use them and how you activate them. You can yeah. flip it, right? So that it's in a way that works for your learning style. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And that's that's probably the most important part because I think we've all, I mean, when I were talking about tech here, but the most important part of any adjustment, I think, is the individual's personal processes <clears throat> and the tech just slots in. And some, And when it's useful, bring it in. If it's not useful, get rid of it. And the tech will change. You know, things will change. VR is coming. You know, things are going to be very different in the next few years. You know, technology is accelerating again, and that's fantastic. But how we engage with it, we always need to think, how does that benefit our process? How does that build into the processes we already have? Because our processes are our gold dust. And I would always argue against anyone that says you should throw out your own processes. I would argue that it's good to tune them. It's good to adapt them. But fundamentally, if you're employed and you're successfully holding down a career, you have processes that work. There's always improvements that can be made, but those processes are incredibly valuable. Look after them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important message for people um, <laughs> because a lot of people have found their own coping mechanisms over you know, however many years and so on. Um, also, of course, some people haven't because some people have regularly found certain tasks just challenging and they've not found a tool that helps them. And that is one of the really important aspects of having an assessment so that someone can help you identify the solutions that work for you. On that point, I also want to touch on how organisations engage with this, because I've had so many conversations myself where I have to 
emphasize the fact that lots of adjustments are actually, you know, free or very low cost. Um, because there's often this <laughs> thought from decision makers that, you know, if we do this, everybody's going to need, you know, £1,500 for their adjustments and we've got a thousand staff. And of course, I mean, I know I'm talking to you, so you're, you know, laughing, but that isn't true. And I think that's a really important thing. So I know I've seen stats with, you know, average cost of an adjustment tends to be around £40. And of course, that depends on your geography. Yeah. But what do you tend to find as sort of average cost for people's adjustments mm-hmm. when you are assessing them so you know that there's, you know, potentially something they'll need? Um, I think <clears throat> it's probably, it's probably you know, it's probably a few hundred quid is probably about the average cost. Depends, I mean, what some, so some people don't need anything. They just literally need to be made aware of what's already there. Others will need more intensive interventions. I think the the key thing is there's something about partnership here though between the employer and the employee in adjustments because i've also come across situations where the employee maybe has an unrealistic wish list of adjustments they think they need which may be because they've been told they're going to be useful or maybe they've just feel they've fought so long and hard to get something they'll just want everything and that's not partnership and that can cause friction and problems but so I think adjustments should be negotiated and should be worked out because ultimately, if we're an employee, we're employed to fulfill a role and we need the adjustments that enable us to remove significant barriers to perform that role. Um, and many of them are quite simple, but those adjustments may change over time as well. And that's why this idea of the we and the negotiated bits really important. So it's revisited. And it's checked in regularly, so there's no surprises, because no one likes surprises. They want to know what's happening, why it's happening, and what's likely to change and what they can think about. Also, it's really important that the adjustment themselves serve the business. And what I mean by that is there's no point in giving someone a piece of bespoke software that doesn't interact with other parts of the business that are business critical. Um, and it's important to think about that. So I did a piece of work recently with um, an individual who's actually a a child psychotherapist. So there's some really interesting work and he's actually using a piece of mind mapping software and he actually wants to completely change the way they do educational healthcare plans because he's seen a new way of doing it. But he's the only one that's got that piece of software and his department want to change everything now. And that's really exciting. But if he'd done that as a standalone thing and said, well, I've got this, you're not having it and I'm going to change it. That doesn't really work. So what we've actually been able to do in this particular situation is partner with the vendor to do a trial across his whole department of them all getting access to the software to see if something that actually can work so then they can move forwards with it. But that's about partnership. And that's not about taking a siloed approach, i.e. we'll fix Bob and make them or sort it out. It's about saying, well, actually, how do we embrace this within an organisation and take these benefits that maybe we're seeing from something that's a useful tool and seeing how it can impact maybe the broader organization as well. Do you know, I really like that. I like the term partnership in that sense, mm-hmm. but also for a couple of reasons. I think one, um, the latter part of what you were saying, which is actually sometimes by finding a solution that works, you can effectively also find innovation that can improve your business, which is quite powerful. Yeah. But the other reason, um, that I really like what you were saying 
is I've had similar situations in the past. I will not mention where, where, for instance, someone stated that they needed a particular style of chair, um, not for a particular um, health issue, but something they always found very comfortable and they needed this particular style of chair. Well, it wasn't a problem because we had the same style on site. So they had them where he'd come from and we had the same style on site. We had some in storage, winner, not even a problem. You can actually have one of those chairs. Mm. Oh no, how our one's had chrome legs. Okay, oh. well, this one's got black legs. So, you know, <laughs> you hooked it up. You you won this prize. Um, no, 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 I need the one with the chrome legs. The chrome legs don't have any functionality when it comes to your adjustments and setting you up correctly. So, of course, we did the whole assessment, actually helped adjust the chair to make sure it was, you know, exactly as um, he'd want it. But he genuinely was so put out that, yeah, the rest of it looked the same, the arms looked the same, the colour was even the same, but mm. the site he'd come from had chrome legs. And he really was put out that this wasn't the same chair given to him by his assessor, uh, assessor the first time because his one was prettier, and he did say that. <laughs> mm. Which is really challenging, isn't it? Because actually... You know, coming back to what an adjustment is, it's about removing an obstacle. But this partnership is so important because actually, I, I mean, I really believe, you know, employers want their employees to be motivated. They want them to be passionate about what they do and they want them to achieve. <clears throat> and they and they don't want to put barriers in the way. But you do so often get into this them and us situation that I think, I, I, I don't know if you've had experiences as well, Jay, but for me, you've got to come in and say, well, actually, we need to get together here and work this out because there's no point in operating in a silo because we're not, when, once this is all changed, you're going to have to go back to business as usual. So if we don't agree what business as usual is going to look like now, it's certainly not going to look any better if we, you know, in the future. It's not just going to magically get better. So having that conversation is so important. Yeah, I, I think it is really important. And I think it's also the two-way street thing. Um, because, for instance, for some people, more so around physical adjustments that they need in the office, what they need today and what they need next month when everything's been refurbished and the furniture's different and so on can be quite different. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was part of a refurbishment. And when people returned to the new space... A lady who was quite short in stature, I would say about four foot eight, insisted um, that she needed a um, footstool. And I said, well, they're never the preferred solution. Of course, if you can, we can set you up effectively with the, you know, with yeah. the floor, then that would be better. And we've got proper height adjustable desks now, and we've got um, better gas lifts on our chairs so they can do a really good range. Should we see if that works? Now I have to have one. So I was like, okay, if you do, then you're going to have to have your desk raised up because you're now going to not be able to sit what would be your kind of appropriate position. And she was absolutely adamant that she didn't want to sit at a really good ergonomic position for herself because she'd always had a footrest. And so whatever position she was put at was with a footrest. And again, those kind of things can be really difficult. And it wasn't necessarily what was good for her. But people get so fixed sometimes in what they need because they've had something before, even if it's been from another building or another business, you know, completely different company. And 
I think sometimes you've got to, you know, especially in a new space, you've got to revisit what you do need so that you are comfortable, you are out of pain and you can work effectively. And I think sometimes individuals can miss that. Yeah. And I think it comes, I mean, for me, it's always comes back to these things. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Because, you know, <clears throat> we get attached to solutions, don't we? <laughs> And they and, and the and you know coming back to what we talked about in terms of those processes, sometimes the solution is no longer appropriate. It's outdated. It's ineffective. Downright dangerous sometimes in some ways. When we find out more about it, we need to come back and say what's the problem we're trying to solve. And that does take guts sometimes from both sides to have that conversation. But we need. I don't know why I'm thinking about the emperor's new clothes, but you know, that idea actually you're not wearing any clothes. All right. Let's just admit it and let's move on <laughs> as opposed to pretending that you are. Cause that's kind of where we get to sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And the reason I like to talk about both sides of the coin is because mm. what I do see a lot of um, maybe hesitance, but some, you know, uh, lack of confidence within organizations about what they're getting right and so on and they don't want to necessarily tell someone no because they want to make sure that they're not being harmful um but that's I guess it's just what you're making me think of because that term partnership for these things makes such a difference and if we get both sides thinking that way I honestly think the solutions are going to be so much better I totally agree and more and yeah it's almost like play-doh isn't it if you can mould it to exactly what you need, you get what you want. But that play that doesn't have to be expensive, but it but it can be absolutely purposeful, unique and appropriate for what you're trying to do. Yeah, no, definitely. I like that. And uh, I definitely I've got this partnership kind of image in my head now, which I think is really cool. But also on top of that, in the UK, it might not be seamless. And I'd like to get some of your take on it. But yeah, we're sure. quite fortunate that we've got mm. access to work. So for anyone mm. listening who, either in the UK or not, that doesn't know about access to work, we have a scheme um, in the UK, a government scheme, where you can actually get support with tools and solutions in the workplace that are funded. Um, and even to a point, and I will touch on that a little bit, but to a point, even for the recruitment process, um, not enough, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> so... I'm just curious because I, from my everything I know about large companies, very few, if any, tend to actually use access to work because they tend to fund everything internally when they're that big. What's your experience, whatever size a company, with access to work, um, and how I guess how the individual tends to kind of find it as well? Yeah, so I think knowledge of access to work is patchy. I think people that have been through the system know about it and know what they need to do. Um, particularly around neurodiversity, I would argue that the process is not friendly. There's lots of forms to fill in, lots of process, lots of waiting, which can be very frustrating because literally the the way it was originally set up was you would literally get your employment, you would apply to access to work, they would come and do an assessment for you and then you would be up and running and going. But that's not a reality at the moment. I know things are improving, but that's not a reality. I think you're right for some larger organisations, they just would fund it anyway because actually the cost of adjustment is generally not worth the weight and the administration involved. Um, 
particularly public sector will use access to work though i know some parts of the government are now i think restricted from using it i think actual government departments can't use access to work and they have to fund it themselves oh interesting i didn't know i, I might be wrong but i'm pretty sure i'm correct on that um we've had some direct approaches from from government departments to do assessments and things it is a useful place now if you I have actually done a little kind of PDF around navigating access to work, if that's useful, Jodie, which I'm happy to share, um, which just talks around how to get the most out of it. Because one of the issues around access to work is that often it's helpful if you know what you need or you're aware of what's possible so you can have a better conversation with the assessor because the assessor's under a huge time pressure. They've got, they're, they're delivering a government contract. There's a time pressure to deliver. And so anything you can do up front to get yourself in the very best position to get the most benefit out of that conversation you'll have with the assessor, I would argue, is useful. And and that might be thinking about, for example, if you're an employer, you know, what other people are using who have similar traits to yours. I mean, this isn't just about neurodiversity, what, whatever your disability thing is, you know, finding out what's worked before, what hasn't, you know is all useful so that can really inform the conversation and help you guide the assessor so that they can give you the most appropriate things to support you in removing the barriers that are there yeah no it's i mean i hear a lot it's funny you say about the time because i hear a lot of negativity from people on the wait times and mm. uh, when they you know when they do need a solution and i think the frustration gets higher when someone's got a solution that breaks for instance so they need a replacement that may be quite costly so something they're just not in a position to fund themselves but then you know to wait several months for this yeah. replacement especially i don't know like a brow reader for instance yeah it, it, it is kind of a make or break moment if that's how you communicate so yeah. it is it's interesting and it's funny because there's probably people going to be listening from other countries thinking like wow this is you know we don't get anything like this and I do appreciate that. But I think when you know that this service is there and the intention of the service is to enable you, you know, as a disabled person to be able to get to work, to be able to fulfill your role and, you know, meet your potential. If it's not working for you, then I can absolutely empathize that the frustrations are real. Yeah. And I think there's also fear. I mean, particularly with smaller employers that don't necessarily understand the process. Because the way access to work works in terms of particularly equipment, they they ask you to go and procure it and then get a refund effectively from the government, um, which is, I have to say, my experience has been it's pretty slick. You know, it's probably somewhere between two to four weeks it takes them to get the money back. But as a small business, you know, that can be seen as a significant risk. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And just so, because I mentioned the recruitment phase, yeah. so it is better than it used to be. And I know in the recruitment phase, you can certainly get some um, funded support for communication uh, support. But for instance, um, so for anyone who looks into this, you can actually get help with, um, if you're unable to use public transport, for instance, you can actually get help with transport to and from your workplace, um, but not to an interview. And it's things like that, that I just think, so, you know, we know cost of living for disabled people absolutely tends to be higher. Um, so you're out of work. You haven't got a salary, for instance. You know, you're still getting by. You're, you're trying to get back into the workplace and even getting to an interview can be a challenge. And I know that a lot of it is now done online, but not all of it. You know, if you're in the vicinity of London and that's going to be your work base, then odds are you will actually have a nice face to face interview. 
But again, you've got to get there. So I'd love to see a little bit more jigged with access to work for the actual recruitment stage because they can obviously see the benefits of that support in the workplace. So I'm hoping to see more benefits of getting people in there in the first place. Too right. Yeah, too right. And that, I mean, and, that, and that's a really, yeah, I think that's a really key area, isn't it? You know, if we're really serious about this stuff, we've got to do it cradle to grave, so to speak, in terms of someone's whole employment cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. So, Nathan, what is your advice to organisations? So I'm thinking, obviously, about employers more than, um, you know, organisations making adjustments for customers and so on. So they're looking at their workplace assessment process. They might not really be sure, other than contact Nathan Whitbread, where to go and, you know, what to do, but they do want to get it right. What's your, what's your advice? Like, where do I start? I think a good place to start <clears throat> is to 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 have a look at your organisation and and notice what's going on. I think is really helpful, and ask people that you know in your organisation that maybe have disabilities what would be helpful or useful for them. I mean, another good thing to do is to start thinking about setting up an employee resource group or getting people together now. I do put a big kind of, um, what's the word, uh, disclaimer on this. When you're setting this stuff up, make sure it has a really clear purpose in terms of what it's there to do. What we don't want is a group to get together so people can moan about how hard life is. What we want is a group that can get together so they can really effectively support each other to be their most effective at work and, and manage the situation effectively and be an effective voice. Um, but I think that's really helpful. You can obviously bring in external people in. Um, what I'd say with, with individuals, if you're identifying individuals that have potential needs, just be aware as an employer, we do have an obligation under the Equality Act to support them, even if they don't tell you they need help, which I know is tricky. So we can notice, though. We can we can notice and say, actually, you know, I'm just wondering if there maybe it would be useful to have a conversation with someone about, potential options to help make this a bit more effective for you or a bit you know a bit less tricky um, and then that could look like for example a workplace needs assessment which can be really useful and just in terms of working out what's going on for that individual now the reason why sometimes it's useful to have someone external is because sometimes people are embarrassed sometimes people are unsure about what to do sometimes people feel it will be career limiting if they talk about disability particularly hidden disabilities um, so we have to normalize it as much as we can and that that's obviously a bit of a pr thing in terms of actually being clear that it's okay not to be okay it's great to actually have real people in the organization who can talk about stuff i worked with this wonderful guy a few about a year ago who described himself as a dyslexic whisperer he was a senior partner in an organization it was slightly bizarre but what he was doing which was brilliant was he was saying you know i'm dyslexic I know I don't work properly in lots of ways, but I know I'm brilliant at this. And I want to just say to everyone else in this organization, it's okay to be like that and let's go and work it out, which I thought was wonderful. So that sort of thing is really helpful, but but please do not be afraid to ask. We don't, but do not diagnose. You can just ask based on what you're noticing. And that could be as simple as, Jody. I'm noticing you're having a bit of trouble with that. Is there anything we can do to support you or adjust that's going to make you able to be your most brilliant best self at what you're doing. Yeah. And I think a couple of things on that. First of all, I really want to meet the uh, dyslexic whisperer, but <laughs> <laughs> secondly, I think the other thing is as well. So 
of you know for a lot of people if it is specifically around neurodivergence then it's highly likely even if someone isn't aware of a diagnosis or they haven't had a diagnosis it's highly likely that the same kind of barriers and challenges have arisen many times but when it comes to other disabilities there you know it's around 80 percent of um people disabled people who acquire their disability in adulthood so sometimes people have never needed an adjustment before and now they do you know it could be to do with sight loss or hearing loss it could be all sorts of things um and so that's also really interesting I think because someone who you know has demonstrated how effective they are in the workplace maybe for many years and all of a sudden there is something being noticed and they might not even resonate with exactly what it is themselves. But that's again, and I keep using your term now, that's where this partnership bit comes back as well, doesn't it? By someone addressing, you know, is there anything that could actually help you? It doesn't need a label. It's just maybe there's a different tool that would help you on Wednesday. <laughs> and I think that's, so you picked up on two really mega things there. The, f- the first, the first I'll just say is, Neurodiversity specifically, change is normally a big trigger. So i.e. classic thing is, you know, someone gets promoted, new role, oh, suddenly all of their coping strategies, the work, the, the wheels have come off the rails because they've got to work out how to do life again because the processes don't work anymore because it's all yeah, different. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, that, that's, so that change thing is really important. You've also got this idea of co-occurrence. So actually multiple things may be going on for an individual at one time so so being prescriptive about what we're going to do to support them isn't helpful because we need to know what's the reality for them and that that that's really really important and so asking them again is really key and doing that in partnership is just essential i think yeah i'm I'm sticking with this partnership thing i really like that vision when it comes to um making adjustments and workplace assessments um, something I just want to touch on, which um, we didn't talk about when I spoke to you last time, but I just want to get your view on it. I did speak on a previous podcast episode about this, but um, self-assessment tools. Mm-hmm. So I have some <laughs> grievances with some self-assessment tools because of how they're set up. And I'll give you an example. I won't name it. But there's a very well-known self-assessment tool that's used in some large organisations where the actual screen the user sees is just four radio buttons and it sort of says, you know, um, screen use is the only thing that can impact my well-being in the workplace, true or false. And so, you know, 99% of people will say false because they know that. And similar questions that are almost trick questions because you're not going to get them wrong, right? And so it, it says, congratulations, come back next year. If you want to actually assess yourself, you know, that you're sitting in an appropriate way, that, you know, that you can be confident that your workspace is effective for you, you have to really literally look at the small print and find the link that takes you to an actual self-assessment. So whether or not the content is even sufficient, and I question it, but even getting that far, you've got to seek it out. It isn't put in front of you so I have real concerns with the fact that a lot of organizations wholly rely on self-assessment to be a trigger for whether or not someone actually needs any workplace support yeah and I think that comes into self-advocacy as well doesn't it because even once you know you've then got to kind of make a big noise about it I think with the neurodiversity space um there are screeners out there that you can self assessed so i'm just doing the whole <laughs> <laughs> inverted commas 
Because I think you have to treat it with care because that's not diagnosis. That's just noticing that maybe you possibly might have some traits based on this particular screener and how it presents. Um, what was your actual question, Daddy? Is it, is it, they're useful? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, well, well, first of all, your thoughts on them. If you know mm. one that's really good, feel free to plug it. Um, <laughs> but just how you kind of find, I guess, the interaction when, if you're going in there, then companies probably aren't relying on them solely. But yeah. your own kind of experience with self-assessment tools, because they, they do concern me when companies... That I think they can be dangerous. Angle. I think they can be dangerous, um, particularly around this space, because actually, I mean... I mean, let's take autism. Autism is a phrase that's, it's a word, yeah? It means quite a lot of things to different people. Many of us have an idea of what Dustin Hoffman looked like in Rain Man or the guy that played the accountant looked like. And they are possibly some representations of some autistic traits, but that's not true for everyone, yeah? So even saying you have traits of a particular neurodivergent condition doesn't necessarily mean anything until you start to describe how that impacts you and your role you've also got this idea of co-occurrence you know based on work by professor amanda kirby and others shows that co-occurrence is the rule rather than the exception so someone that has traits of one thing is highly likely to have traits of something else and there's no doubt about that so you've got this hugely complex landscape that you're then expecting people to self-assess in somehow. And I think that becomes quite dangerous. And there's also if you the whole emotional side of it. So finding out you have traits when you found things difficult in life can be quite emotionally taxing, to say the least, to damn right disturbing. So I think there's a big argument if you're thinking you have traits of a particular neurodivergent to find out at least do a screening with someone who can talk you through what it means and what some of the things are that you can do because the first thing i'd say that's important to recognize is that you have fundamentally not changed as a person you just know some more stuff and you've got choices about what you do with that including who you tell because there's something else as well about how you disclose what's going on for you because I like to think about it like a pendulum, especially when people first find out they've got di diagnosed or potential traits, is that can often create some quite interesting reactions in terms of we think about ourselves and working out what we're going to do. And that may not be the same person in three or six months' time because we're, we're coming to terms with it and we're working out what it really means for us. So there's, there's a whole load of stuff there to unpack. So I, I personally feel quite strongly that if you're going to find out about this stuff, do it with someone you trust. Do it with someone that knows what they're talking about um, so they can help to guide you and and work out what to do next. So though self-diagnosis tools can be useful as a very first introduction to what's going on, I would always go and seek advice and help from someone that really knows what they're talking about. And then from there, get professionals involved who can either do assessments or or work with you to work out what the most useful tools are. Um, and also go and talk to other people that have that diagnosis, if that's useful, to find out what life's like for them, what's been useful for them, what's been very unuseful for them, some of the lessons they've learned, because you can never underestimate the body of experience that's out there 
um, in terms of people with lived experience. Though that lived experience won't be true for you, it's useful to learn from others and and treat it with a pinch of sort of work out how that might be relevant to your particular situation. Hugely long answer. I don't know if that kind of hits the question. No, no, it does. And I mean, that, <laughs> that obviously takes a whole self-assessment thing, you know, right sort of, a bit like the cradle to grave, but, you know, right yeah. across a spectrum of people as well. And I, I think it is really powerful. And it's interesting because earlier you mentioned about staff networks or employee resource groups, ERGs. Um, and interestingly, within an organisation, if you have those kind of networks, and some do have specific neurodiversity mm. networks, um, you know, they're, they're really powerful for people to be able to seek some kind of, um, I, I, not, not champions of the subject, but trying to seek people, like you say, with lived experience, who they can bounce off of, who they can share experiences with, particularly because if it's, the landscape within an organisation they're trying to navigate that they're finding particularly challenging, getting someone from within who they can, you know, uh, sort of buddy up with for want of a different term can really make a difference. And I've seen it in action and it's really worked for so many people. It's brilliant. Uh, the other thing I'd add to that as well is I think there's also something about that support's really helpful, but also noticing that just hanging out with people like us doesn't work it always work in a work context so being neurodivergent means that we have extremes of some thinking styles and some traits which are really useful but we often have holes in other thinking trait in because in, in of the spiky profile so we want to buddy up with people that aren't always like us to help us work out how to do things best and a good example for that for me is i work with a va who is not neurodivergent who is flipping organized who is a genius at making stuff happen and that works really well for me. Sorry, for anyone who doesn't know, that's a virtual assistant. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But Nathan's got another pair of hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> another brain. Who <laughs> does things that I can't do. But that's really important. And that's where, and this is where I think, particularly around this newer diversity space, the power of team, when it's done well, is immense. But play to your strengths and then work with others who can help you manage the things you find tricky is a really useful approach. Yeah, do you know, um, another thing that I found really helped some people in the past as well was a reverse mentoring scheme. So rather than just having a mentor, it was literally framed as the individual effectively mentoring the senior leader. So in reality, it was kind of a partnership. <laughs> See, I'm back again. It was kind of a partnership because they were both learning from each other. But it was done like that intentionally to kind of shift the narrative a little away from the seniority um, and they really helped because it it gave people, particularly people who were neurodivergent, it gave them an opportunity again to learn some other ways of kind of navigating, but also to educate people in senior positions and in influential positions on how as a business, not only, you know, um, differences bring value, but also how they can think a little differently to make sure that they're not kind of going always down the same track and that they're actually looking at people as human beings. It, it was it just had quite a lot of power to it. And I don't know if it's a common place, but it, it worked really well. I don't think it's common enough, Jodie. And the other thing you can do as well is, which I don't know if you've come across, is something called action learning sets. And that's just the idea that you work with a group to solve problems together. Uh, but it's like, 
it's like one person will bring a problem and then the group will basically coach them with the facilitator, but everyone's learning because <clears throat> you can imagine in that reverse mentoring situation, there's, there's one person learning. Yeah. And they're having a great learning experience, but then they've got to then articulate that. Whereas if you had a group of five people and one person, you know, and they're learning together, suddenly you've got five people learning at the same time. And that can be incredibly powerful, especially if you really want to make changes that, that impact organizations. Yeah, no, I like that. So there's so much happening, of course, and you know, you're making a positive difference in organizations. So there's something I want to touch on because people can't see you right now, but usually when I can see you, you have pictures of children behind you. So I just want to touch on the fact you're a parent. And so as a parent, you obviously, well, I say you obviously do, dark at me making assumptions that I tell people not to make. But you must think about the future and, of course, how you want the world to be for your own children. So what do you wish the workplace is going to look like by the time they're heading into it? I just really hope <clears throat> it's a place where people are valued for what they bring as opposed to for what their perceived negatives are, you know, and we start with that. Coming back to this idea of partnership, you know, you've got something special to bring. So what do we need to do to help that flourish? I love that. And I hope that that's exactly what they find when they go into the workplace. So to help that happen, I can't actually give you the magic wand, but I'm going to pretend because this is my standard question for all my guest speakers, as you probably know. <laughs> um, Harry Potter style, I'm handing you a magic wand. And so it's magic. There are no limitations. Very nice wand. <laughs> very, very nice wand. Um, it's got, you know, unicorn hair anyway. So... <laughs> If you could wave it and change something to make the world more inclusive or more accessible, what would you do? I'd give I'd give organizations permission to hire the people that surprise them the most. Ooh. I like that. I do like that. That's a really good answer. You see, this is why I love this question. I've never got bored of this question. It's not just because I'm a Potter fan. The answers are always fantastic, but I do really like that. So do you know what? In a way, we could wave that magic wand because if anyone's listening, if you're in recruitment, if you're influential, you know, if you're helping to actually set the culture and the scene for your business, why would you not? want to take that step and start looking at getting people into your business who do surprise you because and I've said it before but if we stop trying to just find people like us you know that that resonate that you believe is just like you um that's where creativity and innovation and competitive edge is where they all come from that's my little temper of work um so, Nathan, you've shared a lot, and I think a lot of people are starting to switch on to the need of making sure, you know, that workplaces are actually fit for human consumption. So if they want to find you and they want to find out more, or you know, they want to link up or maybe they actually want to find out if you can help them, where do they go to find you and find out more about what you do? Well, you can find me at the the neurodivergentcoach.co.uk on, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And very happy to connect and have conversations. 
but please do connect and have conversations. <laughs> no, it'd be wonderful. And I can share links with the episode. Um, and actually, on that point, you mentioned your PDF. Um, yeah, so got. I've got a it's, it's, it's a yeah, so I've got a newsletter sign up which has got that PDF included in it. That's okay. So if uh, you get me the link for that, yep, then I can. Um, and, make the sure bit, that and, we, and the bit we didn't touch on, which is in the PDF, is how to get access to personal assistance if you don't have a physical disability and why that's really useful and important. Oh yes, sorry, but that that's okay. Missed. We've just got completely carried away, and I was getting too excited. That's what all right. Saying. But that is a really, really important part um, yeah. is about that personal assistants are not just for people with physical disabilities. So we can play with that. Um, just to touch on it then, see what I mean? I get carried away when I'm excited. <laughs> people, this is why people are surprised that I'm not neurodivergent. Um, when it comes to PAs, so give us a couple of examples of people who benefit from PA support. I do. And I'm just like, so I'm dyslexic and I've got ADHD and autistic traits. Um, and I work and I've worked with other people who had ADHD traits. What they bring is they bring the ability to do the things that I, that, that individuals find difficult to nigh on impossible. So that could be around managing time. That could be around proofreading. That could be around structure that could be around any number of things, but that they bring, they can bring that clarity. Now, I would say, as a sort of coming back to the kind of label of caution, you've got to find the right person to work with you. It's a bit like dating in terms of, not in the literal sense, but in a sense, you've got to work out how it's going to work. You've got to build the ground rules of, of what you're comfortable with in terms of, you know, how much you're able to trust them. You've got to work on that. But if you do it right, and, you know, I'm really happy to talk about this at length if anyone wants is interested. I think it can be incredibly powerful. But like dating, do not rush in and get married. <laughs> Take it easy and make sure you find the right person because actually finding the right person to support you. And I would suggest, again, like dating, you don't want someone like you. You want someone who's different, who offers skills you don't have. I think that's really powerful. And actually, can I just clarify, because I'm not sure on this point, are those PAs in the UK funded by Access to Work? Yes, they can be. Okay. Are, are there limits to that? Do you know? Because um, So, again, the PDF shares it all, but oh, I'll just okay. give you some highlights. Um, so, the, the basically, the way Access to Work work is they ask you to get three quotes. So you and they will look at those and you need to make sure that those quotes meet your who who you want to work with. Um, but if they're happy with those, one the, the quote that you've put forward, then they will accept it. And then they will give you an amount of time based on the amount of time you need to fulfill those roles. That's really helpful. And I'm sure there'll be people that that's a surprise to who could actually benefit. Mm. So I'm not actually sorry that we nearly forgot because closing out on that is actually really powerful because it's not just making the point that people can benefit, but actually, particularly if you're in the UK, it's making the point that this is literally available to you. So yeah. I think that's wonderful. And thank you very much, Nathan. You've been an absolute no star. 
Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad you could take the time to come and share with us all. And I'm sure your LinkedIn connections are going to start ringing when the episode goes out. So, yeah, just thank you so much. And uh, we'll obviously be in touch and hopefully you'll hear from a lot of our listeners. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jodie. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I absolutely did. That's why I got so carried away. So until next time, the more myth busting. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please rate us and leave us a review. We really want to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the amazing guest speakers we have lined up.